Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. I'm going to introduce our final speaker who is going to be uh, covering a panel session. Uh, I'm going to be part of the panel as well, just for the sake of having uh, another voice. But we're going to be talking about coping with ocular melanoma as an entire family, um, with the caveat that we recognize and we hope that the resources we've shared in previous sessions will have been helpful to those of you who maybe family doesn't look the same, right? Family is a different structure. Maybe family is is different. Um, but Katie, um, Katie and Allie and Eve have done such a good job, and Carol is going to wrap things up. So to introduce Carol, Carol McCall has been working as a licensed professional counselor for 16 years, specializing in trauma recovery. She's also the author of The Single Mom's Devotional, and she lives in Dallas, Texas with her husband, Angus, and their adorable mini golden doodle, Barney, and her 94-year-old father, Grampy. Her large stepfamily includes eight adult daughters with various spouses and partners and 10 grandchildren. Carol was diagnosed with ocular melanoma in July of 2018 and had plaque therapy in August of that year. In her free time, she enjoys coffee with friends, baking, crocheting, Bible study, serving at church, and travel and quiet weekends at Holly Lake in East Texas. So Carol, I'm going to bring you on screen. Welcome. Thank you guys for being here. And Carol, I'm going to actually let you start things off and then introduce the panelists. Okay, thank you. And um, I'm just so grateful for this opportunity. I'm really honored. I feel like I'm in the presence of heroes right here. And so I'm super honored to um, be able to do this. I consider this more of a roundtable. I don't think the things I have to share are any more important than the things that the panelists have to share. So I'm just kind of one of the panel in a sense. Um, so today, yes, our topic is coping with the impact of ocular melanoma on the family, and I will be referring to it as OM because it's less of a mouthful to say. Um, and since Danae's already introduced me, um, I will share a little bit more about my journey throughout our conversation today. But um, we're going to be really focusing on two things. We've all heard in the, on the pages, the OM pages, that cancer is a family disease. We hear that a lot. We also hear um, that cancer doesn't have to define you. And I'm going to broaden that to cancer doesn't have to define your family. Um, and so those are the kind of the two things that we're going to look at. And as far as um, cancer as a family disease, we're going to look specifically at communication within the family and what that looks like and also um, support within the family or not. So um, I think that it's really important to remember that every family is different. There are four of us here on the screen, or actually there's Three, four, six of us on the screen. Every family is different. Every family has its own demographics. And so the things we say today are not prescriptions for everybody that's listening. They are just um, our experiences. And I hope that the diversity of our experiences helps people recognize theirs also. But I hope that there are valuable threads of what is shared that can be applied to each context. So I just hope there's a good takeaway for every person listening somewhere in all of this content today. This is a massive topic. As I started looking at it, I thought, oh, I could write a book on this actually, um, and I won't. 
but <laughs> but we will not cover everything mm -hmm. that I have already prepared to discuss. Um, but we will we'll get as far as we can. Um, it's super important to remember we all every family has its own demographics and dynamics, their own strategies for coping with stress and coping with difficulty. Um, also, also their own, um, every person has their own baggage, their own coping skills, and even their own emotional health or unhealth. And every family system has its own emotional health and unhealth. And then all of a sudden into that basket of messiness, this disease drops down. And all of a sudden we have to figure out how to navigate this thing that nobody ever even heard of. So it gets really complicated. Um, so I think that we need to just pay attention to that. You know, Danae already mentioned that I'm in a blended family. And so I've got three daughters of my own. My husband has five. There's various marriages in there and spouses and partners and 10 grandchildren. Well, number 10 is on the way. Um, but I'm so much closer to my own children than I am to my stepchildren. So that that makes that's a dynamic there also. So everybody's going to get a little bit of a chance to share a piece of their story. I want um, our panelists now to go ahead and introduce themselves and your name, the date of your diagnosis, mm -hmm. your tumor classification, if you know it, because that mm -hmm. matters for many people, whether or not you have metastatic disease, and then your family demographics at the time of diagnosis. <clears throat> and if that's too much to remember, I'll remind you. So, mm -hmm. and whoever wants to go first can jump in. Ashley, do you want to go first? Sure, sure. Um, so I'm Ashley McCreary, and I was diagnosed uh, in 2012 when I lived in Memphis, Tennessee. I had my right eye nucleated just because the tumor was so large. Um, I, at the time, was 42 years old, and my children, I have four children and married. I've been married, it'll be 32 years in March. Um, but at the time of diagnosis, my children ranged in age from, I, I do better with grades, but with, from first grade to a junior in high school. And a um, very busy time for a mom, especially considering they were at three different schools, all involved in sports and activities and church and music and all the things. And, um, and I worked full time at the time as well. So um, fast forward eight years and I had um, the disease spread to my liver in October of 2020. Um, we moved when we were in a new city. Uh, it wasn't new to us, but it was new to my kids. Um, we live in Auburn, Alabama now, and um, my children are now ages 19 to 28. So a freshman in college, a senior in college, a son that's married and uh, does not live in town, and one that lives in Nashville, Tennessee. So um, definitely life-changing from being in my home, watching me deal with this, to outside of my home for the most part, and how we deal with this. Um, for those of you who know me, I travel to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania once a week for treatment. Um, I'm usually there every Sunday through Tuesday and uh, could definitely talk about the impact of that on family and on our relationships and whatnot. But um, that's kind of the dynamics of our family right now. Okay. Thank you. That was a, that was mm -hmm. a lot. You remembered it well. Thanks. Heather, go ahead. Um, I was diagnosed September 29th, 2021 um, here in Houston. And um, I had brachytherapy November 1st. Um, and what else do we want to know? This, this, this. Your classification, tumor class. Um, so uh -huh. class two, pre negative. 
it was a medium-sized tumor, um, like 13 wide by two high. Um, and I'm married, be 36 years this year, Jim, and have two children, Emily being the eldest, um, and then we have a son also, couldn't be here today. And how old are Emily and your son? Emily is 30 and our son is 27. And so they were in their mid-20s-ish. Yeah. Right, yeah. Diagnosis. Uh -huh. And do you have metastatic disease or not? Oh, yeah. And no meds. Okay. Danae. Thank awesome. You. Well, um, my name is Danae Peterson, and I was diagnosed, uh, I guess I'm from Phoenix, so I'm in the, the Scottsdale Mesa area. Um, I guess they're different areas, but I was diagnosed in July of 2020, and uh, I think probably came across Ashley's story pretty darn fast on social media and um, have followed her journey since then. But I was diagnosed in 2020 at the time. Uh, my husband and I had been married, oh goodness, eight or nine years, somewhere around there. I'm starting to lose count. Um, but my baby was nine months old and my oldest was, mm. I mean, this was the height of COVID, right? So my oldest was, I believe going into first grade, but he was going into first grade digitally. Like he didn't even finish all of kindergarten because everything shut down in, you know, March of 2020 before I was like, you know, diagnosed. Mm. So I was dealing with the dynamic of the pandemic and having little kids at home and my husband working from home. Um, adjusting to my own life as a, you know, work from home, stay at home. I was already a stay at home mom, but like trying to also work while being mom and doing school, it has made me very much, um, not sure I could handle homeschooling, <laughs> but, um, fast forward. And I have now been navigating this diagnosis for over three and a half years. And in November of 2022, I got confirmation that I had metastasized thanks to a class two prime positive diagnosis. Um, or prognosis, I guess is the better word for it. But uh, I spent a couple years pretty darn scared. Um, I remember with the first year I was diagnosed, I, I bought, you know, a coat and I remember buying this coat for my daughter who is now almost eight. She'll be eight next week. And she was maybe what, four or five, like not even in kindergarten, she was finishing another year of preschool. And I just remember getting that coat, looking at it and going, I don't even know if I'm going to see her wear this because her being eight felt that far away. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, now, you know, my, my oldest is 10 and he is quite the smart, smart, smart child and also has many things to say that maybe are not the smartest things mm -hmm. to say, but I, I value his opinion. Um, and I hope that he knows that. And I have an almost eight year old and my baby is now four. And so, you know, we've had, we've had kind of the, the children growing up within this diagnosis and within the stress that it brings to our family. Um, and my husband and I have now been happily married for, oh goodness, almost 13 years. Okay, thank you. And I will say um, in my story, um, my children were all adults um, over 20 at the time of my diagnosis. And also my husband's kids were all adults. Um, actually my diagnosis was two and a half weeks before my daughter's wedding. So that was like mm. having some, a bomb drop. Um, so yeah. And I think it's really important to pay attention that for all of us, we're just clipping along at life, doing all the things, all the things, and more, maybe more than we should have been anyway. 
And then this drops and a cancer diagnosis absolutely is traumatic. The ground shifts under your world as you knew it and your projected future as you anticipate it suddenly is just kind of up for grabs. And so um, this takes a big emotional toll mm -hmm. on us as patients. And it also takes a toll on our marriages, our kids, extended family members. I think Danae mentioned my 94 year old father lives with us. Um, so he was not that old, but he was 80, he was late eighties at the time. Um, and, and it also takes a toll on the way our system functions. So for each of you panelists, um, how has you, how have you experienced OM as a family disease in your situation? Like what was the impact at the time of diagnosis and has that impact changed over time? Have things settled down or have they gotten heightened because of metastatic disease or, you know, just kind of fill us in on that briefly. Um, I guess I'll go first. And um, am I I'm muted now? Okay. Only yeah, because I went first a minute ago. Thank you. Um, so I will, I'm going to tell you there's some raw stuff and probably in my situation because um, my kids were, at least two of them were younger um, when I was first diagnosed. And we had just had a friend of ours pass away from pancreatic cancer that was in high school. And my children had all gone to that funeral a week before I was diagnosed. We were all together witnessing this. And so we had talked about um, cancer and we had talked about death. We had talked about heaven. We had talked about all kinds of things because they were kind of facing for the first time, someone that was their age that, that passed away. And so when my diagnosis came along, all of that was really raw, even with my youngest, who was seven at the time. And I can remember um, my husband and I, you know, sitting in the car after the diagnosis came, being told that I would have to have my eye nucleated. And uh, I don't know where this came from. It was kind of like what Katie was saying, like, sometimes you're just resilient when you're just resilient. You don't even know where it, and for me, you know, I know that a lot of my strength comes from my faith. And so Dave and I literally prayed about going in to talk to our children about, um, about what I'd be facing or what words to say and how to dispel any fear that might be because the other was so raw. So we did, we, uh, we ended up meeting with each of our children. Of course we have four and because they're so different, we met with each of them individually and, and told them of the diagnosis. And, um, and I can, you know, my oldest was very matter of fact and was like, um, mom, are you going to die? And I was like, well, you know, we, we're all, I mean, this is what I said. So we're all going to die one day. And I said, but this is one of those things that we don't know. And I knew nothing about ocular moment. This was literally the day I was diagnosed. And so we have got a lot to learn, but, um, but we will always be honest with you is what I said. And so we'll always be honest with you and be part of it. My, and then he was like, well, if you're not going to die, I'm good. And he was out the door and went and played basketball. And then my second son, who is very detailed, he wanted to know, he had questions. He wanted to know answers. He was a junior in high school. He was very um, tender and clingy. And uh, um, yeah, he just wanted to be around me. Okay. And then my daughter was the kind that was like, I love you, mom. And she's writing me notes and writing me letters. And, you know, even in the moment, she just wanted to hug and, um, you know, just kind of process it on her own. She didn't have a lot of questions. She, she, I remember her saying she would trust us and whatnot, but then Ben, he just ripped my heart out. He was my youngest seven. It'll make me cry. Okay. Because I mean, he just, he just asked, he said, if you die, like Trey died, would, um, will you be like an angel that you can still see me? Hmm. Well, 
And then just to fast forward, just so you know, um, we were able to kind of deal with all that. And um, Dave and I knew that just, again, collectively, I, I just said, we're just going to, we're just going to live by fate through this and, um, and learn as much as we can and um, not take anything for granted. Uh, we, we began doing special things with our family and whatnot, which I'm sure we'll get back to, but then fast forward to uh, being diagnosed metastatically. And um, again, um, for one, my sisters and I are very close. My fa- parents are close and I'm, uh, but coming back in to have to tell our children that this has come back. Um, one of the things that we all will say is kind of a, a hard thing is we look fine. I look fine. Um, I look healthy. I have my hair. Um, and so I, I say that to say that I can remember coming to them and then looking at me thinking, well, you don't look sick. And, um, you know, at this point, you know, my children were, you know, again, older, um, and some in college, some out of college and, but anyway, having to come to them in 2020 and say, um, this has come back and, and the hard part for us, those of you who know my story know that there were, I, I was surrounded by people and, and there was a lot of media attention on these women who, uh, had metastatic disease that went to Auburn and we had done a lot of, of news media and two of those women had passed away prior to at least six, nine months prior to my diagnosis. So again, my children know the reality. Like they knew probably too much about, they knew the statistics and uh, I mean, Caroline even sang in one of, at one of the funerals. Um, and so I think that was, there was another sense of, okay, we, we thought you were, you know, you're eight years out. So we thought you were fine and you're not. And so again, as adults, they all dealt with it differently. Once again, the oldest kind of not really denial, but like, hey, we're not going to talk about it. Um, you're going to be fine. Very optimistic. Jackson, again, asking every question of the book. He's just like my husband. Um, Caroline, once again, it's so funny how just even as adults, they were this way, but very tenderhearted, very sweet, very much so. I want to be there for you. What, what do you need from me? What can I do to help around the house? And then, you know, was, was, this is again, 2020, like Danae was saying, and, and we're dealing with school and distractions and whatnot. It wasn't that he wasn't caring, but he also thankfully had the distractions of all that was going on in his world. And, and we just kind of talked about it and made a plan. And I think that was one of the things that helped us is that Dave and I are very calm people. Anyway, I'm extremely optimistic and positive and, and, uh, again, honest, um, and because we had been honest and transparent with our kids the whole time, I think there was a sense of, of trust there, knowing that um, in the moment, we did not know what was going to happen. So in the moment, it was like we have the grace for right now. We have grace for this conversation right now. We have grace for uh, the decisions that are going to be made. Um, we're going to prayerfully go into it. And, um, and even just showing our kids how to live through difficulty and how we respond and um, is it going to be in fear or is it going to be in, in faith? And for us, um, it was in faith. We, we prayed together as a family and, um, and then moved forward. So that's kind of how we dealt with the whole finding out, sharing it with our kids um, and just being honest in, in the moment. I, I know we'll get back to this, but each one of them deals with it differently now because I've had several, you know, up and up and down and, uh, but if anything, it's made us more intentional, definitely more intentional as a family in terms of spending time one-on-one um, and making sure, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that nothing is left unsaid, mm-hmm. uh, nothing's left unforgiven, um, nothing is left, you know, that I, I don't 
want to have any regrets and they don't want any regrets. And so we, that's kind of how we approach our relationship now. Thank you. And I, you touched on mm-hmm. things that actually lead right into the next where we're going. So I'm not going to expect that everybody's going to answer every question because we don't have, okay. we only have, no, that was good. Plus. Rats. So anyway, um, <laughs> but um, I think that you touched on this really important piece and we have to look at, there's two slides. One is the grief cycle. That's slide one. Um, we have to pay attention that um, we, most of us have seen this diagram somewhere along the line, maybe it was college psychology 101, but um, you know, they, they, they've identified these different stages of going through grief. And usually they're identified as denial, anger, bargaining, despair, acceptance, and hope. Um, and at the time of diagnosis, we go through this, but so do our family members. And we have to remember that mm-hmm. we are not the only one going through it. And we also have to remember that it's a, not a neat linear process. This diagram was just, you know, somebody drew it out, but they kind of didn't draw it from their own personal experience because if they had, it would look like the next slide, which is, I call it the grief spaghetti. That's how the grief cycle really looks like. It's not even, it's not even a cycle. It's just spaghetti. And so, and I think that we go through that process again and again, if there's new developments in treatment or um, you know, for people who are suddenly losing their vision and things are getting more complicated or losing their eye suddenly when they only had plaque initially and certainly when there is progression to metastatic disease, then boom, there we are going through the grief cycle again and also every, every person in our family. And so um, I thank you for putting those up. Um, so I think we have to remember that even within the family system, we're not all moving through it at the same timetable or in the same way, you know, and everybody has their own coping mechanisms. So I'd like to hear a little bit from some of you, how, what helped you give space for others in your family to be in different places mentally or emotionally than you are in dealing with your own cancer? Danae. So I just wanted to touch, I guess, on this mostly just because at the time that I was diagnosed and also the time that my kids, uh, or that, that I was diagnosed with metastatic disease, my kids were still super young. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I have, I have, uh, you know, as young as a baby who had no concept of what was going on. Um, and to now she's four and she still really doesn't have a whole lot of a concept of what is happening in, in this, in this realm. But I've also had kids who went from zero understanding to now they have a greater understanding. And as a parent of young, young kids, I think it's been learning to, uh, learning to just kind of follow their lead in some ways and learning kind of learning their cues but but I'm I'm still a young parent and so I think it also comes with a lot of grace for myself as a parent because I'm not going to know exactly what they need I'm not going to know exactly how they might respond because we're still learning that like they're still in those key areas of development where they're developing these patterns of how they're going to respond to traumatic things in the future and so um a lot of that has come with you know me trying to just listen And, and I don't just mean, listen with my ears. I mean, like, listen and watch and observe. And my husband is also really, he's a very observant person. And so this has been really helpful in our family. Same with my siblings, my family. Um, Sometimes, you know, I notice, I notice my kids um, tend to be a little bit more riled up and they just, they're a little more on edge. They're a little more easily, you know, driven to anger with each other. Maybe they're fighting about every little thing and it's driving me insane because, you know, contrary to what you might think, (laughs) I am not this constantly patient, guilting myself into thinking I should never be frustrated with my kids person. I experience frustration like 
on a day-to-day basis. And that level of heightened emotion that I feel usually comes around scams when I have that extra fear and that layer of of worry of, okay, what's next? Like, what am I going to have to adjust to if anything? Um, and my kids feel that. And I definitely notice that as a mom, they feel that. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes when I'm so caught up in it myself, it takes my support people around me, right? It takes my husband, it takes the school therapist who talks to my kids on a weekly basis. Um, it takes the teachers or even making the teachers aware of what's happening to know so that they know, Hey, you know, I'm learning that Josh, my 10 year old, he's a very anxious kid. I've known that about him. He and my, my youngest, they're very anxious kids. And I, I know, I know it because they fight bedtime. That's how I know. Um, but telling his teachers, Hey, some of his anxiety might come out. What I'm observing at home is that he's, he's a little more chatty and he might be a little more chatty at school. And so the last time I I got some, my last round of scans, I just, I got some notes home from the teachers basically saying he was, you know, being disruptive. And I just, I just told them, look, I normally, I normally communicate with the teachers, you know, what exactly is going on, but I haven't ever really considered that maybe I should do it every time I have scans. And so now I'm like rethinking that. And I just told them, look, moving forward, I will let you know, because I think that, I mean, he has grown up with this. That's, that's really what has happened. He's grown up with this. He's grown up with feeling all of the undercurrent and, and like you said about the grieving cycle, there's a part of me as a parent that grieves that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that as his parent and knowing that about him, I can also support him in that. I can't take it away. I can't make it any better. Um, I can't, you know, solve all the problems magically and never have to deal with this ever again in our lives, but I can support him in that. And so I think just for me, it's, it's been learning, learning to observe what my kids need at the times that they need it when they maybe can't help themselves and, um, and then communicating with the people who can best support them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Thank I will leave it at that. Thank you for sharing that. I think that you bring up a good point. We just have to be really paying attention to our kids and their own bent um, and what they are signaling they need from us, even if they don't have words for it. And younger children often don't have words for it. But honestly, yeah. adults don't either. A lot of my clients just don't even know what they're feeling in the moment unless we just kind of yeah. sit and wait for them to start to feel their feelings. So yeah. um, And I was going to say too, my, sorry, I forgot this, but my sister, like, and really my sisters are, so my kids aunts, right. They're, they're some of the most observant and they're just really good at, you know, if I am in this heightened state of anxiety, they are really good at grounding me back as a parent to say, Hey, you know, have you thought that maybe Tatum's just missing you? Or maybe Josh is just anxious. Maybe they're just a little bit worried because they have a greater understanding as of the last year, their bubble, you know, Ashley, you mentioned this idea that, you know, your kid's bubble of this idea that cancer could hurt you. It hadn't really popped for my kids until I was diagnosed with metastatic disease. We hadn't ever had an experience with, with death. Uh, that was associated with cancer. We had lost my grandma, but that was it. And they were little, 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 they, they didn't really grasp that then. So I think just recognizing kind of the shift in that dynamic too, has been important for us this last year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I mentioned to Heather earlier uh, before our session started that this morning I woke up to an article on my BBC news page, which is my home news page about, um, this woman who has ocular melanoma, it's its one of their top stories in today's news. And um, she's a 31-year-old OM patient. And um, she found out a year after her diagnosis that she now has metastatic disease. And so um, in the article was like how, what, how, what, how she learned to think about life differently. 
Um, and there's this quote she had, well, I copied it. It says, you do not, you do need to have real, realistic expectations of people. Just because I may be comfortable talking about it doesn't mean my partner or mom or dad are comfortable talking about it, she said. You have to adapt to other people because they're grieving for all the life they thought I was going to have as well as knowing they will have to eventually grieve for me not being here. It's very complex. And dang, we didn't get a script for how to walk through this, did we? Nobody, our kids didn't come with scripts like to begin with. And then all of a sudden there's this, right? So, but so much of life, we are, our job as parents is really to teach our children how to live and how to live well. And part of living is also embracing difficult, hard, sometimes catastrophic things that come along and how to navigate those things. And so, you know, that's such an important thing um, to keep in mind that big picture. Okay, this is part of my job now. Now we're going to talk about how to deal with these big, big kinds of things and Danae and, um, Ashley have had to have those conversations with their kids as they have dealt with Mets. But I, I loved it that she says you have to adapt to other people. And sometimes as a patient, you can get really self-centered and think it's just about me and my disease and da, 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 da. And I want everybody to get it and understand. And actually it's not just about me. It's about everybody that is around me also. And together we are moving through this and coping with it. And I hope we'll hear a little bit from Emily and Jim down the road too, because you have a voice in this. You know, you can you can speak to how it is not being the patient, but being around it. Um, we're going to move forward into a section about um, the issue of communicating with your family. And um, I did not do a slide of this, so I drew a picture instead. And Danae and I discussed this a couple of weeks. I didn't know how to draw a slide of this, but um, for those of you who are listening, I want you to get a blank piece of paper. Um, and if you don't have one, just do it mentally. But um, and on that blank piece of paper, you're going to draw yourself in the middle there, okay? And that's me with my long curly hair. And then you're going to draw an X for your different family members. Now, later on, you also might want to add in other marks for close friends who I consider family. They're not biologically related, but they are family right in your heart. So draw an X around you and for each of these people, but put them either close or far away, whoops, to your image, um, based on the emotional closeness you have with that person. And you will know, and, and maybe also based on whether or not you would turn to that person for emotional support. You'll see a whole slew of little X's over here. Those are people I feel very emotionally close to, but I would not turn to them for emotional support. They are my grandchildren. And only, a, only three of my grandchildren even knew about my cancer because um, two years after my diagnosis, my granddaughter got cancer. And so her family was into the soup of dealing with cancer. And so cancer was a common conversation and we had to, we, we could easily talk about it. And I could identify with Gwen because we both had cancer. Um, hers was terminal, like from the get-go. Um, so anyway, so draw this. And then after you draw this, I want you to just take your marker and then just draw circles. So this would be my inner circle right here. And then there's another circle here. Um, and then there's the people on the outside. This other circle, for instance, that X represents my father. He's 94 now. There are things I'm just not going to weigh him down with, even at his diagnosis, you know, my diagnosis, that I would not weigh him down with because he was 89. And I just hate to see my 89-year-old father's heartbreak. Um, there are questions he asked my husband. That's okay. They can have that conversation if they want. But um, 
these become your circles of who you're going to lean on most for communication and for support. And I, I could tell my father, oh, the appointment went well, but I'm not going to go into some of the details. And right now he has, he's on hospice and he's on complete bed rest. And if I get Mets, I'm not telling him because he doesn't need to know that. And he'd probably forget it by tomorrow anyway. So I'm not having that conversation. Um, so pay attention to those circles of communication and of support because they help you think about your own expectations. Like not everybody in your family circle is going to understand you or get this and they don't actually need to. You actually need some pe safe people who are outside of it a little bit that you can just go and have conversations about all the rest of life with and you don't have to revolve all of it around cancer. So um, for the, our panelists, and maybe I'll just ask Heather and her family to jump in a little bit um, because they didn't get a chance to share yet. Um, think about what boundaries you might have needed in communicating with family members about your ocular melanoma, um, maybe to protect younger children or if there were people with mental health issues or seniors like my father, um, or to protect your own well-being, or there, maybe there's like there's some there's an X on there for a family member who would give me advice that I you know it's just not gonna she's well-meaning but it's just not gonna work. So she's she's in my second circle even though I love her dearly. Um, what kind of boundaries did you need in order to um, communicate with choose who you're gonna share how much with? and also protect yourself from your own expectations of support from others that might be unrealistic. What do you want to say something? For you. Did I put you on the spot, Heather? <laughs> no, I didn't, know if, I didn't know if they wanted to. Um, I mean, I think with uh, our two children being adults and um, you know living close by and being understanding, it was very easy to share. And you know we told them, immediately uh, like all of us I, the word's not naive but you know you go into it just thinking it's this little cancer and it turns into a, this complex long thing which we didn't know at the time so it just you know grows a little but um and then and then the rest of our family um of course not all of our friends but many of them live in different states or countries and so um it was a little while before telling, you know, some people, um, but there wasn't, there wasn't really anybody that, that we have that I needed the right words protected or needed to put a boundary. I feel that everyone, um, I mean, obviously like you, you've got your, you know, but there was a point and I think it was at least it might have been getting close to a year after diagnosis when I've kind of let it go out to anybody that I could think of, friends and whatever. And I'm in contact with so many, I have a very big circle of um, very close friends and, uh, and relatives. So it took a while for it to go to everybody. And that was only because if people say, how are you doing? I didn't want to. So I kind of wrote a whole long thing and put it out there for everybody to see. But I don't remember ever feeling that I had anybody that I didn't need. I didn't have young children, didn't have anybody too elderly or or dealing with something else, thankfully. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, too difficult there. And for Danae and Ashley, did the boundaries change once you 
did get metastatic disease? Did you feel like you had to share that with your with all your family members or with some of them? Ashley, I know you also have elderly parents. Um, yeah, how did you navigate that? So I guess I would say initially diagnosis, you know, eye diagnosis, primary diagnosis, my kids didn't really know fully, you know, they, they didn't really know what, what was going on. And my family members, I was pretty open with, you know, anyone who was really an adult in my life. Um, but I even had at the time that I was diagnosed, you know, I had a, a freshman in high school brother and a junior in high school sister. So like there was even a layer of wanting to protect them, you know, on some level from, from some of the weight of this, not, not necessarily from all the information, but just from some of the emotional weight that came with it. Um, and that has, you know, shifted over time, the older they've gotten, you know, these, these siblings of mine, I'm, I, I am pretty proud of my relationship with my siblings. Um, but I can also recognize that my sisters and my mom are probably the people that I'm the most vulnerable with and my brothers and my dad, you know, I may communicate with them. I may be honest with them, but I don't feel maybe the same sense that net of emotional safety that I feel with my sisters and my mom. And, um, but you know, again, my, my high school sister, I wouldn't have put quite as much on her then as I maybe would now, or because she just, she wasn't in a, in a place that I felt comfortable trying to ask her to carry that with me in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but the other side of it too, is that the older kids get, the older, the, the people in my life, or the really the longer that we have weathered this together, the more that I think the people in my life that are the closest, that are maybe my inner circle of, of communicating with or just sharing, the more that they communicate um, maybe what they need to me, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so like, I just, I just think that there's been this give and take in, in how news has been shared, whether it's been via text message. Like I, I can tell that, you know, sometimes I don't have the energy to just text every single person and try to remember every person and every text thread there ever was. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I just put a social media post, especially when stuff is happening rapidly, because when I was diagnosed with metastatic disease, it was like, bam, bam, bam. And same with when I was first diagnosed, there was like, there was a new thing every week, if not every couple of days. Mm -hmm. And so the, the energy that it would take to try to call the, call up everybody on the phone, I didn't have the ability to do that. And my family just had to kind of adapt with me to getting the news the way that I could give it. Um, and that I think in some ways, you know, that comes at a cost for some of the people that you, that maybe, that maybe kind of to, to flip what you said, that as a patient, you think maybe that you're, you're entitled to be the one that is at the center of this. And, and I think that the other people in our lives also feel that, right. That, that they're at the center, you're their best friend, you're their sister. Um, I remember my sister told me for like a year, she was in grad school and she would just say, well, my sister has cancer. <laughs> I can't do that. Like, because my sister has cancer. So like I became the scapegoat or my diagnosis did because it was such an emotional thing for her. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think just recognizing we all have that, that, that it feels like this huge monumental thing to each of us as individuals at different times. And I, I guess I would ask Emily and, and Jim, do you guys, do you guys feel like you guys have felt that at different times? Like a, I guess an ownership of this in some Definitely. ways. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it's actually, it's kind of, it's kind of funny because I have definitely used that excuse like, oh, sorry, my mom has cancer. <laughs> you know, and it's not, it's not a joke at all, obviously, but humor is such an easy way to deal with such a heavy topic. Mm -hmm. Um, and I kind of wanted to just really quick get back to the grief spaghetti because yes. when you showed the initial, you know, little 
yeah that I was like huh I don't remember going through it that way at all and then you're like <laughs> it's actually more like this and I was just exactly. speaking to my friend um this morning I was like hey I have to go I have to go back home I'm going to do this little webinar for author Melanova with my with my parents and I you know I was like yeah I I'm not really sure like you know I feel like I'm handling it really well and everything and she goes you didn't <laughs> <laughs> you did not handle it well when we first got the news. And I was like, huh, yeah, I must have already blocked that out a little bit. So total grief spaghetti. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it does change with time. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Jim, did you oh, have anything sure. to add? Um, I, I didn't have it in the issues like that. It was more of just a one-on-one -on -one personal feeling between the two of us. It was very earth shattering and mind blowing that it even came about. Um, but more, more of it is just understanding what Heather's feeling and the grief of that, not knowing how her, how she feels every day, how it feels after that eye injection. How does it feel with your eyesight changing? I, I can't see that. I don't know what that feels like. And that, that hurts the most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have to pay attention to other things going on in the family system also and, and how they play off of all of it. My husband's first wife died from cancer. She was actually a good friend of mine. She died from cancer. So when I got a cancer diagnosis, he's like, oh my gosh, wife number two, cancer, you know? And then our granddaughter got cancer two years later and she got the same cancer that my husband's first wife got. And so then my husband went through the season where he got angry with God and um, he just had to kind of wade through a lot of spiritual issues and questions and such that I didn't always have the um, bandwidth to be able to help him with. And he actually honestly didn't always want my help because I'm the therapist and he didn't want that. So, yeah. <laughs> so you have to just pay attention to all the all the things that can play off of this. Um, I would do want to, I'm looking at our time, we have 20 minutes left. Actually, we only have about 15 minutes left because we're going to take some questions. So I do want to um, touch on this piece with young children. I'm thankful that that's already been addressed some because we don't have to go into it as deeply now. But, um, you know, children do pick up on our emotions of fear and anxiety. They also pick up on our confidence and our hope and our joy. And I think it's super important to be paying attention to what are we communicating to our kids about dealing with these big, hard things? You know, what what's the primary emotion that's circulating in our household and yeah at scan time maybe that's it's everything kind of ratcheted up a bit I know for me when I was diagnosed well I went through a week of a week of different appointments at UT Southwestern um seeing doctor after six different doctors before the next week I landed with Dr. Fuller in Dallas and he's not part of UT Southwestern but the second day Tuesday I had an appointment with my daughter to figure out how to do her hair for her wedding because she wanted me to be the one to do her hair. So I'm at the doctor's office and then I'm going back to home and we're sitting at my vanity trying to do her hair. And then I'm back at the doctor's office. And while I'm doing her hair, she says, so what did the doctor say? Well, that morning, the, the person, the assistant person who shouldn't have ever said this dropped the cancer bomb. She said something about cancer and I just lost it. You know, I was like, hold on, nobody has called this cancer yet. So when my daughter asked me that, that was not the time to drop that bomb. And I didn't have a clear diagnosis yet. And it certainly wasn't the time for me to share anything. And I just said, he said that I need to come back this afternoon and see another doctor. That's all I told her. 
because this girl is, you know, her wedding's two and a half weeks out. She didn't need all this. Now I did get a diagnosis by the end of the week. My husband actually was the one that told the family because I was a basket case by the end of the week. And so he told my father and my daughters and the long distance ones were on Zoom or something. And um, I couldn't be there. I could not, I did not want them to see my distress over this. And I, I just needed him to get the words out. And then my daughter, the one that's getting married, Robin, came back to my room and she gave me a big hug. And I said, Robin, we are not letting this steal our joy. You are getting married. This is your wedding. And cancer might try to take my health. It might even try to take my life. It is not taking our joy about your wedding. No, no, no. And um, that was actually a really good, well, her response was amazing because she said, mom, it's perfect timing because God knew that you would have all your closest friends and family around you at our wedding. Isn't that great? And so, you know, what a blessing that was to me. What a gracious response that was on her part. But it also was to speak these things out loud. That became kind of the way I navigated with lots of things. Nope, this is our family vacation. I'm not, I am not thinking about scans that are happening afterward. Cancer doesn't get to steal our vacation, you know, whether mm -hmm. your kids are older or younger, you get to choose how much you're going to let this be the center of your conversations. Um, I am paying attention to the time today. Well, um, you know I what? Do, um, I do if want everyone, if everyone is comfortable with it, I am fine if we give it an extra 10 minutes because we okay. had so many hiccups with technology today. So if everyone has the time, we can Thank go 10 you. minutes over. Thank you. So I'm oh. going to skip a few things and I'm just going to jump down to this whole business of living with uncertainty because every OMI talks about how hard that is and it's hard on everybody in the system. And yet we don't want our especially younger children, we don't even want, we don't want all the people around us to be walking on eggshells, you know, struggling with all this uncertainty. Like how did you help yourself and help your family members um, live well in today without carrying the burden of uncertainty? Some of those burdens are certainly way too big for young children to carry. And, you know, I see people in my office who grew up with parents who had diseases, et cetera. And they, you know, just they brought all that anxiety from childhood into my office 20 years later. That's really hard. Some of it can't be avoided, but we can also equip our kids to deal with uncertainty and give them reassurances, et cetera, that they need, just like we need reassurance, so do the people around us. So what are some things that you did to help people in your family live well today without carrying the burden of uncertainty? And some of that, as I already alluded to, some of that is just not telling them some things at certain times. It's just not the right time to drop that bomb on them. But there are- Actually, you look like you had something you wanted to say. Oh, yeah. sorry. Uh, well, one, one of the things that kind of ties in exactly to what Carol's talking about, um, especially when you do, regardless of the age of, of your children um, and even your spouses, um, everybody's got their own stuff going on, their mm -hmm. own crap, just not to use a more harsh word. And uh, one of the things that I have, have had to do is go- like, you know, we're not the center of attention and, you know, my daughter may be having friend issues and my son may be having, um, you know, he didn't get on the basketball team. And then you've got, you know, a husband who's struggling with a job and, or whatever. So there's just always, always in life, you're going to have disappointments. And so for me, part of what I would try to do is dealing with uncertainty or you know, dealing with certainty <laughs> is, um, 
is, is show how to, how could I walk through that with, with grace and, and use it as a teaching moment, but also a moment where I could say, look, it's, it's okay. We're, we're not always going to be okay all the time, you know, and we're going to have to talk about it. And, and like Danae was saying, when my kids were younger, I mean, I was having to look for kind of peripheral things that, they weren't so overt. They, they weren't able to put words with how they felt and what they did. And so I would, um, I'm a big person that, you know, yes, I totally agree with Carol that you sometimes are guarded at the timing in which you tell somebody something, but I also think, gosh, if you can bring it to light, the, the fear that surrounds uncertainty can oftentimes be, you can get rid of it. So instead yeah. of uh, ignoring a conversation, I may say, you know, let's, let's go, get some coffee, Caroline, and let's talk about what this means. And, or, or maybe even not that, like I'm, I'm, I can be very silly and very funny. I think humor as Heather was saying, or somebody was saying is just so important. And, uh, and, you know, I've, I've done that too, where um, I actually took my eye out one time and put it next to my, my son's bed, who was <laughs> going through something difficult and, and actually said, Hey, I've got my eye on you. I'd, I'd like to talk, talk to you about this later. And he thought that was hysterical. <laughs> And it led us into us being able to have, you know, that kind of conversation. But anyway, I, I think dealing with uncertainty for one, um, I, I had to know how I was going to deal with that and articulate that. And then just as a mom and as a wife, you know, we haven't even brought this up yet. And I'm sure you're probably going to, but with each, with each one of my kids and my husband, there's been an issue of me recognizing that they want to fix it and they can't. And me having the tenderness of heart to go, I think sometimes it's harder to be the caregiver. Sometimes it's even harder to be the child because at least when I'm sitting in the chair, like I, I, I get to hear from the doctors what's going on and I get to process it and I get to be in the decision making. They, they just have to watch it. Mm-hmm. And I have to be sensitive to go um, to make sure I ask questions or make sure that I'm, I make myself emotionally available and, and physically available to go, how, how are you dealing with this? And are you okay? Um, and that can be tricky too, because sometimes I'm not okay, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I do think, I do think to, to kind of, you know, bring something to light dispels the darkness and um, will help the, everybody be able to deal with it instead of feeling like, everybody's got to walk on eggshells and suppress it and act like everything's fine and be strong for mom and, and all those things. I think sometimes we just have to say, you know, th- this is crappy, but let's talk yeah. about it. And then let me, let me talk to you how about steps on how you're always, you're going to have something you're going to go through mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. And it, it could be death or divorce or, you know, a loss of a job or whatever. And when those circumstances come, how, how are you going to handle it? And yeah. hopefully I can live by example and, and show how to do that. But just acknowledging too, that they've got stuff going on. We all do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important in the midst of yeah. what we're dealing with, recognizing everybody's point. got their stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. I was just going to say, to add to what you said, um, every time, every time I hear someone talk about this idea that talking about it, like, right, bringing it to light, that just not leaving it in, in the dark, so to speak. Um, it always brings to mind like kind of the the mindset that I adopted at the beginning of my diagnosis because I am such a Harry Potter fanatic, Emily. We can we can nerd out here. Um, but it's just this idea that fear of a name increases thing the a fear of a name increases fear of a thing itself. 
And mm-hmm. so that idea of like, you know, that sometimes we, we carry that level of avoidance or almost, almost a fear to make it real, right. That talking about it makes it real, but it's, it's the making it real sometimes. Like when you have a nightmare, right. When you're, I, I always tell my kids like, Hey, did you have a bad dream? Like, tell me about it. Because I remember as a kid, I had a bad dream and it would, it was this recurring bad dream, but it was only recurring until I talked about it. And then once I processed it verbally, once I talked about it with somebody else outside of, you know, the dream world of my mind, um, then it became less scary and not that cancer becomes less scary because you talk about it, but it becomes maybe less burdensome in some ways, because you can carry it differently when you're no longer trying to hide it, or you no longer feel like you're carrying it alone and nobody can carry it with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe part of what we're talking about here is that, you know, it is a family diagnosis, but it is only a, you know, and I say family loosely because we, we, I think all can recognize that not everybody has a loving husband and wonderful kids or, you know, young kids or the same family picture, right? Everybody's family picture looks so different, mm-hmm. but just those ideas of relationships that are so key and important and special, we all have that. Um, and we all have the capacity to continue to grow those relationships, um, or to grow new ones if needed. Um, but as far as the dealing with the uncertainty goes, I I had to pop my kid's bubble and I kind of did it on accident in some ways. My son overheard a conversation that I was really emotional and I was not maybe guarding my words as well. And I, I realized because I saw his like wide eyes, like I just saw him looking at me with this like big wide deer in the headlight look. And I had just, I had been pretty blunt in some of the things I had been talking to maybe my mom or my sister. And I had this realization that day that like, I think he heard me. Like, I think that, you know, whether or not he fully understood it, I think he heard me, um, even though I thought he was zoned out on the computer or playing, you know, playing with his sisters or whatever. And so I made the decision after talking to a few other adult children who had parents with a cancer diagnosis, whether their parents survived or not. Um, and their, their advice to me was just this idea that, you know, it helped to know maybe not every detail, but just to at least know what was going on and maybe the severity and the weight of it on some level mm-hmm. so that I didn't keep te- thinking it was my fault that my mom was upset because that's what kids do, right? Kids tend to internalize things in such a way that it it becomes um, something that their internal belief system starts to program them to say, this is my fault. I did this. My mom is upset at me. My mom is mad at me and it's my fault. And so Um, I just remember having a conversation and it was more of an an asking questions, right? Like the way that I've handled, you know, Santa Claus and the tooth fairy, like just this idea that, you know, what do you think? And what did you hear? And just trying to just probe for those, those answers so that I could understand just how much he was understanding. So I I didn't want to over explain, right? Because he was still young. He was nine, barely. Um, And so popping that bubble though came a little bit at a cost. And it, it came in this moment where, you know, they were just brushing teeth and we were just, I just asked them, you know, can you just tell me like, Josh, do you have questions? And Tatum was listening. And I just said, you know, it's okay for, it's okay for Tatum to be here. Like, I need her to talk to me about this too. Cause I want to know, I want to know what you guys are worried about. I want to be able to communicate with you. Um, but at the end of this really hard conversation and, you know, just moments of lots of tears and, and tears from me and tears from her and, and tears, maybe not tears from Josh, but I could tell that he was, he was taking on that big brother role. Right. Mm-hmm. And he just told me at one point, he said, mom, I think we should not talk about this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause my daughter was so sad mm-hmm. and I could just, sorry, I'm not trying to cry. You guys, I promise mm-hmm. you guys just bring it out. Um, 
but I just remember she just, she just said, mom, are you going to die? And I, 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 that was why that was so familiar when you said that, Ashley, because I heard those exact same words from my six-year-old and, and I, you know, my logic brain wanted to say, well, yes, one day, but what I ended up, you know, what I ended up telling her to help them cope with the uncertainty was just this idea that, you know what, like to, to try to instill confidence, right. That confidence that maybe I didn't fully believe in yet, because I didn't know if I was even going to be here today, like a year from now, a year from that point. But I just had to tell her, you know, mommy's doctors are doing everything they can to make sure that I'm healthy. The cancer that was in my body is gone because at the time we had had an ablation. And so literally there was no cancer in my body. And the reason I was having this conversation was because I was about to have my eye removed like two days later. And so there was just, it was just bam, 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 right after another. Um, And it had been six months of this with these guys. And I just knew that this was, I could just sense that this was the time that we needed to talk about it and maybe not talk about everything, not talk about all of the heaviness, but we needed to talk about it. And, and I just ended the conversation with the mantra that I had adopted. And it was just the, you know, that mommy's here today. And I promise I'm going to be here tomorrow, like most likely, (laughs) but I promise I'm to be here tomorrow. Like I'll be here when you wake up. And, and I like just told them like, and I, I believe those tomorrows will add up Mm -hmm. and really just kind of like giving them that layer of assurance that, that even if I maybe didn't fully believe it at the time and wasn't really sure exactly what the future could hold, that I could, I could try to give them that shred of certainty and just, just something to hold on to. And really it's, we say certainty, but really it's, it's more just that hope and that faith in the future. Um, and just, just to share that I did have that, that I believed in that kind of slim piece of hope, even if, and that I would, you know, try to magnify it as much as I could and exaggerate it because, you know, it didn't necessarily have to be small to them. Um, so I hope that helps, but Heather, do you have anything you want to add? Just to coping with uncertainty, I think is the the gist of it. Um, I mean, it's so at our stage in our lives, we're looking to at retirement. We travel a lot. We um, we've talked about uh, living somewhere else. And so it's it's put a bit of the kibosh on that, like because, you know, even if we move somewhere within the United States and we want to make sure there's good healthcare for me mm-hmm. yeah, I know mm-hmm. and and so it's just it's changed that kind of thing I mean the other side of it is if if I get those every time I get a scan it's good and like three months good and where are we going and what are we doing and I really do think I can uh for the most part I mean it probably comes into my conscience every day at some point but I do really feel I put it behind me a lot of the time and we just I just really try to have the best life but it is it has made it and that's what you think too right about yeah. the uncertainty yeah the un- obviously uncertainty is probably the most popular word for any of this any from anybody that speaks it's one of the first things that comes to mind is what's happening and where, what's going to happen mm-hmm. we have a future of yeah retirement and trying to figure out where we want to be what do we want to do and it's 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 a hard decision to make because we have a very good system of care here in Houston, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a difficult decision to make to to move away from that, even though there are a lot of indicators that show that we should be moving away from Houston at times, for many reasons. Um, but we have our our families here here in, in Texas for now, our close family, our son and daughter. Um, so it's, it's a really difficult thing to, to try and figure out not knowing. I mean, 
Yeah, every time we have a scan come up, there is that uh, tense feeling. I know Heather feels it. I feel it. Uh, you just don't know. Mm -hmm. And the results are always good when they're negative. Uh, that's the best part about it. We go back, like Heather said, we go back. All right, negative, negative results. What's on the What's on the agenda for the next three months? What are we doing? And we yeah. we're, we're we're living three months at a time. If you really want to put it down to a science, it's a three month life every time. Um, and I, if we have to do it for the rest of however, then that's how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Just a matter of where we're going to be. I mean, we we can't make up our minds what we're going to have for dinner some nights. So making a decision on where you want to be in life in the next yeah. year, two years is major with this diagnosis hanging over our head. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, sometimes it does change like what you thought your future was going to look like theoretically, but also very practically like, oh, maybe we can't move like we thought we would. Retirement's not going to look like we thought it would. Um, that's a very real thing. You know, most, a lot of women, a lot of people are diagnosed this around with this around age 60. And so suddenly they're facing retirement years and might not happen the way they thought it would. Um, for me, I don't carry, my life is so bursting full. I don't carry a lot. Like I don't project a lot ahead in any area of my life. I just kind of do what's on my calendar for that day. And I pay attention to what's coming that week. So I don't even tell my kids when my scans are until it's like, oh, that week or maybe the day before or the day of. It's like, oh, by the way, I'm having scans because that's what popped, that's what's popped up. Um, and then I reassure them that I'll let them know how it turns out. But um, I think that that's actually been good for them because they don't, they, you know, if I told them the beginning of January, I've scans the end of January, they might spend the month of January thinking about that. And why bother? Like that's wasting their emotional energy. They don't need to know that. So I've kind of had a mindset of telling my kids what they need to know, when they need to know it, and that I don't know what I don't know until I do know it. So even if I have scans, I don't sit there biting my fingernails until I see my doctor a week later. I just keep going and I figure if there's something she needs to tell me right away, she'll tell me right away. And usually if I don't hear from her, that's actually a good sign. So that's just kind of how I cope with stuff. I just have I live life close to the margins in my day-to-day -day life. So I just don't have lots of spare emotional energy to, to deal with all this. But some of you have touched on some really important things about antidotes to stress and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. And honestly, everybody lives with uncertainty. We make lots of assumptions. We assume we get on that plane, we're gonna get off in one piece and then we're gonna get off at the right destination. We assume when we drive to work that we'll come home that night. We all live with lots of assumptions that are actually embedded in a lot of uncertainty. We just don't pay attention to it. So honestly, we, when we are giving our kids these life skills about living with uncertainty, we're, you know, for the younger ones, we're preparing them to live with uncertainty about where they're gonna get accepted to college or where what they're gonna major in or who they're gonna end up marrying if they marry, things like that. It's just a basic life skills, learning how to live with uncertainty, the unknown. So, but as, as we talk, as I do wanna to try to wrap this up, think about some of the um, antidotes to stress and anxiety and fear that have been helpful. Like I think Ashley mentioned humor. Um, I mentioned focusing on what I do know instead of on what is uncertain. Um, uh, Danae mentioned she has mantras. I have a mantra, stay in today. I have to stay in today because today's big enough. <laughs> um, um, what, other, what other antidotes do you have 
to dealing with stress, anxiety, fear that are helpful, not just to you, but to your family. I loved what Jim said. I know like you, you said, you know, we're living, living life in this in-between, in-between the scams. And I can totally relate to that. But I think you, you maybe have have said that sometimes you have, you know, you're planning, you're planning for the next big thing. You're planning for the next, the next experience, so to speak in life that life could have to offer, whether it's traveling. I mean, and I, and I would say it doesn't necessarily have to be big. Um, like, yes, sure. Like sometimes the most fun is to plan like a trip or to, to plan something that you get to look forward to. Right. But I think finding ways that we can look forward to, to the little things or to, um, just the simpler things also is helpful. Um, I don't know, like I, I love decorating. <laughs> so like when I get to redecorate something or when I get to redo something at my house that I've, I've been wanting to kind of restructure, restyle, that to me is, is in some ways therapeutic and it's helpful to kind of bring my mind out of a heightened stress point. Um, I know after my last set of scams, I decided to have an entire Harry Potter birthday and I spent months like making a bunch of stuff for this party, like decorations. Um, but it was, it was like done almost, not even almost, it was intentional. Like it was very much, it had, it has become this intentional pattern that whether or not, whether or not the results of the scans or the results of the doctor's appointment go up or down that I still plan to live after and that I plan to live through it and with it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that, that word intentional has come up several times that I know mm-hmm. for us, I told my kids early on, like right away, love time is my love language. And I want time with them more than anything else. It doesn't have to be a big fancy trip, although that would be fun. It can just be a weekend together at their home or whatever, but time that's, I'm logging time. I did that with my granddaughter also when she was, when she had cancer. Um, I know that creative outlets, like Danae mentioned, creative outlets get all the good endorphins going. We, we actually we actually really need to do creative things. And it might be, not, not, I feel terribly creative, but sticking flowers into a pot and kind of turn, that's a creative outlet or planting something and watching it grow or redecorating or crocheting or you know whatever, whatever creative things that you can engage in that gets really good endorphins going in your system. And that's, and your kids see you finding joy. You know, I tell my clients, make a list of four or five life-giving things and do one of them every day, no matter, and my kid, my clients come to me in trauma, severe trauma. And this is one of their disciplines to just keep them out of depression keep them out of getting stuck and to be, connect with things that are meaningful to them and give them joy. And I think as we choose those things, it doesn't mean, oh, we're just into toxic positivity. No, we're just kind of balancing the scales a little bit because this this side of the scale is kind of heavy. So this kind of, I'm just going to add some joy over here and do those things that are life-giving. So I really encourage people to, to find the things that give them joy. And some of my clients will say, I have no idea. I'm just busy taking care of my family. I'm like, well, go find it. Come back with your list. So, and I encourage them like 45 minutes a day. Just, um, and if one of the things on the list isn't working, move on to the next thing. And, yeah. um, you know, not every day you can do that, but if you can do it, you know, three out of seven or four out of seven days, that's a, that's good. Um, we have run out of our time and I had so many more things to say. I know I'm so, but, I like, I wish we had like five hours to just talk about this. Does anybody, I wish we did. And maybe that's a whole nother webinar, right? But yeah. does anybody, like if you had, if you could say one sentence of your, the takeaway you would want for families 
um, as they are coping with like, what's one, if you could distill one takeaway for families that are listening, what's the one takeaway? And I hope that I'll hear from Emily and um, Jim also on this one. It's, it's worth just one sentence. Give yourself some time to think about that. But I can start up with us. Okay. It's the same as yours. It's time. Time is the most precious. It always was. Mm -hmm. And now it's more so. I've always said time. I always like time when try to do, you know. So mine is time. It doesn't have to be just, can just be coming over. But I just, it's time with the, the people that are most dear to me. That's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, well, time is my love language as well. It's quality time. Um, and so, it goes both ways here. And I adore my mother and my father. And so spending time with them is always a joy, but it's just extra special now, you know, because like you said, we're logging it. Um, but, and I would say um, I'm probably not the best listener, but I have been trying very hard to listen and be as supportive in that way as I can um, for my mom too. So. Mm -hmm. and, to, be able to give over to the humility and the humbleness of just being human, um, not be, give away your self-centeredness to somebody else and somebody else that needs that care, needs those thoughts. Because um, sometimes, because it, right now, Heather does not have metastasis. It's, it's, a, it's a single diagnosis that was addressed through the brachytherapy, but we have the scans and we have that constant concern and, and, to be able to take a step back and put myself in her position more, that's something that I think everybody out there that's on the outside, not a patient as a family member or a spouse or a child, to give in to that thought, make sure you're thinking that, because sometimes you lose track of it. I mean, we have a lot going on in our lives every day. Mm -hmm. that's, that's something I'd rather share with everybody. Thank you. Anyone else? One sentence. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's definitely um, definitely not taking things for granted. And I know that's so cliche, you know, don't take anything for granted and whatnot. But to to live in the moment, to uh, I have to live in the moment because, like y'all, sometimes I I I will admit that there have been times I've really struggled about making long term, you know, plans or or whatever. And and then I have to stop and say, okay, we we need to wherever your feet are planted we're, we're going to live in that moment and do it. But then I also don't want life to get away from me. And with the busyness of life, mm -hmm. if you're not intentional and that word keeps coming up, I definitely think the silver lining to this is, um, when you do have to kind of face your own mortality or, or whatever is, is you don't put off to tomorrow something you can do today, but you have to be intentional to make it happen today. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed watching um, some very intentional things happen in all of y'all's lives as I've gotten to know each, each one of you. Uh, but like today did something really special this past year, I think a year and a half ago, you know, renewing her vows with her children there, or we did take a special trip uh, with our family to do something extremely intentional, especially with my kids being older. Mm -hmm. um, me having not just my friends go to Philadelphia with me, but one-on-one -on -one time with my children, with my husband, um, again, not leaving anything left unsaid. I'm, I'm a note writer. I like to make sure that, that I acknowledge things, that I, I see them and I hear my kids, my husband um, in ways that, you know, we just live in the moment. You know, mm -hmm. I, I definitely think that's important. 
not to not to wallow in in this and and it, it is very easy to get into that mindset too because I can do this going okay I don't have scans now for nine more weeks so we've got nine weeks of whatever but we're not guaranteed tomorrow That's you know right. we're not guaranteed tonight and so I I have started just looking at it going gosh what do, what do we need to do today to make today memorable or special or mundane whatever what do we need to do today and mm-hmm. I think you bring up that. such a good point. You started out talking about um, gratitude and mm-hmm. gratitude is a great antidote to depression. Gratitude, they say that cancer patients who practice humor and gratitude actually have better outcomes, studies show. Mm-hmm. So those, you know, those are things to pay attention to. I'm going to close with um, this quote from this British woman who has OM. It was in, It's at the end of her article and they're asking her how she wants to be remembered. She said, I want to remind people to stop and pause Put the phone down and take the time with the people around you. I feel like we're always striving for more, a bigger home, a bigger car, a bigger this and a bigger that, but we forget to see what we actually have in front of us. I want to be a reminder of what we have. And so just learning to treasure Mm, what we have been given, you know, in the Psalms, it says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And if we can gain wisdom through this journey by being mindful of our own mortality, we get to pass that on to our families. And we get to, you know, we're, we're downloading to our families all the time. Um, what's the, what the priorities are, what matters, how to live, you know, all of that. And so it, we have been given a unique opportunity to download really important things about really big things for our families that some kids don't ever have to grapple with until they are adults our ages. So yeah, that's kind of how I wanted to end that. Danae, did you have anything you wanted to add? We have, there's questions, I um, think. Carol, I, I just want to say thank you to everybody. Um, as far as I can see, I am seeing lots of thank yous and comments, but no specific questions. Okay. I do agree with you that I think we could easily cover four or five hours just on this topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we definitely recognize, you know, just both between Carol and myself in hosting this session and hosting the Ion Mental Health, that this discussion is not over and kind of like what, um, what Ali said in her panel or in her discussion, there's not really a destination here. It's this living, breathing experience that we're all going through, and we all are going to experience it differently. Um, I love what Katie said about just being okay with the mess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that uh, you know, as we're kind of as we're wrapping up, as we're concluding, as we're moving on with our day this week, um, our rest of our month, whatever we have that we're facing in the next few weeks, the rest of this year. I just hope that you guys can can take away a lot of what really everyone has shared on some capacity, and that's just to give yourself grace. Like you're not you're not going to handle this perfectly. You're not there. There is no perfect way to handle it. I think is what Katie really touched on. It's just this idea that it's messy, and that it's okay for it to be messy. And if there are the days that you carry yourself well and you are positive and you feel hopeful and you feel like you know you've got it figured out and embrace those days. But if you don't have it, then also don't get down on yourself for that. This is very much a process. And it's, it's something that we're always ebbing and flowing. And, and like Eve said at the beginning, we're riding these waves, right? We're riding the waves of hope and fear and they come and they go and they come and they go all of the time. Um, and they probably will for the rest of our lives, whether, you know, whether we deal with this diagnosis and survive it, or we deal with this diagnosis and it ends up, you know, being, being the thing that brings us to that point where we have to accept, you know, moving on. Um, but I just think it's so important to honor that space and honor the, honor the journey, I think, um, 
So that's that's all I would say. And and in addition to just thanking everybody who's participated, Heather, Emily, Jim, thank you so much for being here and just uh, for being for being part of this discussion as a family too. I think it's I think it's so helpful just to have a couple of people yeah. from from within a family circle who can say, hey, you know, this is how I've been feeling about this, or this is how I've been experiencing this. And I um, I hope that you guys have found this helpful um, and everyone who's listening as well. And Ashley, thank you for being on. Um, don't know where I think she might have had to jump off, but um, I am going to go ahead and pull up my slides again just to wrap up some some things. Unless you wanted to say anything else to close, Carol. I just wanted to thank you for putting this whole big thing together. Your life is very very busy and complicated, and I just appreciate all the time that you put into getting this all set up for everybody to enjoy. It was a real gift to the whole OM community. So. Well, like I've said before, this is recorded. Thankfully, I did hit record on every session for the most important parts, um, but it is recorded. We will get these recordings up. Uh, give us a couple of weeks. It just usually it takes a little bit of time with all of the back and forth of production, but give us a few weeks. We are going to pull these up for recordings and we would love for you to share these. Share these with every people or uh, newly diagnosed patients. And those of you who are joining us today, be gentle with yourselves. You may need to recover. You may need some space from OM for a couple of days after, after just how much we covered today and how much ocular melanoma was the center of the whole conversation. Um, it's okay to need that space. So if you need to, you know, set those boundaries with yourself and go set your diagnosis aside for the rest of the day and go do something silly, go do something creative, go read a book that has nothing to do with cancer or personal growth or, you know, any of the books we recommended earlier, don't read those books. Just, just do something that is fun and joy giving, um, because it's important to feel those things. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all right, well, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our panelists and I will pull up our screen, um, just so that I can share just a special thanks again to our sponsors. We are so incredibly fortunate to have sponsors who are backing uh, events like this. And so, you know, those of you who are joining us or who are listening, please, you know, just recognize that we can't do this without sponsors. Um, we, we are entirely, you know, funded by sponsors and these kinds of events are put on because of these sponsors. Um, so we are so thankful for Castle Biosciences to continuing uh, their sponsorship and and every year that they sponsor us, we're thankful for Immunocore and Idea Biosciences, Aura Biosciences, Tricellus Life Sciences, and Dalecast Systems. You can see posts from us and uh, various different things that we share news from them. We do try to keep you as up to date as possible from these bio companies as they have updates on trials and research to share. Like I said, this is all going to be recorded, um, is recorded, and it will be available on the I Believe podcast, which you can find on Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcast, Amazon, so many different avenues. Uh, please subscribe. Subscribe to YouTube if you would prefer to listen there. Uh, but we would love to have you follow along so that you get all of the up-to-date news on on the slides or on the on the on the podcast episodes. Um, just a final call, if you have not yet joined the Insight Registry and you're new to your diagnosis, put this on your radar, um, check out your new patient packet. And if you are you know, coming across this as a newly diagnosed patient or just as a seasoned patient and you haven't ever joined the registry, consider joining the registry to provide your story to research. Um, we are coming up on, I believe, our fourth year with the registry. We're coming up on our four-year anniversary. Uh, I could be wrong on the date, but basically we get to a certain point and this data becomes usable. And um, 
data is only usable if it's actually updated. So those of you who are part of the registry, those of you who have joined it in the past, make sure you're filling out your surveys, you're continuing to answer the questions and just be in the know. You don't have to spend all day every day in it, but you know, consider maybe setting a goal of 30 minutes a month where you just really sit down, you answer a few questions and you just update where you are in your medical journey with ocular melanoma. Coming in the summer, after we have AACR, ASCO, uh, AAO, any of the different conventions that happen, right? That there are medical doctors, your ocular oncologists, your medical oncologists are attending these seminars. And we are going to bring you yet again for the second year in a row, Eye on Research, where we are going to pull together the most relevant research from all of these conventions that happen in 2024. In the summer of 2024, come usually July, uh, after all of these conventions or the majority of them have happened, we'll bring some doctors who have attended, presented, and just get to share some of the latest research in uveal melanoma. So stay tuned for that and we will see you next time. With that, I'm going to end the day and we will see you guys in the summer. And if you're back on the I Believe podcast for any other future listening, have a good day, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.